0: KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com.
1: A new equity metric aims to level the playing field of COVID risk.
2: The overall rate within the county must be somewhat similar throughout the county, that you don't have a, a disparity going on.
1: I'm Alison St. John along with Maureen Kavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Candidates to replace Congresswoman Susan Davis are vying for voter attention.
3: Uh, getting creative, doing Zoom events and just trying to find ways to connect with people virtually.
4: Texting, uh, communicating with voters through social media um, and utilizing the power of social media, really.
1: And KPBS General Manager Tom Carlo announces his retirement. That's all ahead on Midday Edition.
5: Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.
1: Every week, all eyes are on the triggers that determine whether we can reopen more businesses and schools or if we must retreat again in the face of COVID. California added a new trigger to the list of conditions that must be met before we can advance from the second tier, the red tier, to the orange tier that would allow more businesses to open. It's called the equity metric and it goes into effect today. It's an effort to level the playing field of how COVID affects different communities. Here to help explain what it is and how it could help is Dr. Kimberly Brower, the Vice Chair for Public Health Education at UC San Diego. She's an infectious disease epidemiologist who has researched how living in a marginalized community affects the transmission of infectious diseases. So Dr. Brower, thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you very much for inviting me.
1: So now, what is this new trigger that San Diego needs to meet in order to advance to the next tier for reopening?
2: So this is a health equity index that's been added for all of California counties with over 100,000 people. And this is just one of a variety of indexes that counties need to meet in order to open further. This Um, Health equity index won't trigger a backsliding in tiers, but in order to move forward, uh, the most disadvantaged neighborhoods in a county must not lag far behind all the other parts of the county. So in other words, the overall rate within the county must be somewhat similar throughout the county that you don't have a, a disparity going on.
1: So how big is the disparity currently, you know, between the the number of infections and deaths in in disadvantaged communities in San Diego? How does it show up?
2: Well, uh, unfortunately, this virus has really been insidious in some of the most marginalized communities, socioeconomically marginalized, as well as racial and ethnic groups that have traditionally not had the best access to health care. So In San Diego, um, 62% of our COVID-19 cases have been in the Hispanic or Latinx population. Also, the um, Pacific Islander population has been especially hard hit. So both of these groups have approximately four times the rate per 100,000 cases as whites do in our county. African-Americans have also been quite hard hit with twice the rate as whites.
1: So what would the requirement be if they're like four times more likely to be infected now? Where would it have to be in order to move up to the next tier?
2: They're hoping in general to move to the next tier that you have no more than um, seven new cases per 100,000 countywide. And now they want to start making sure that that metric is being seen in a variety of neighborhoods, not just overall. At the moment, they're still tweaking some of the regulations in regards to how they're actually going to determine this. But right now, they've divided it based on a California Healthy Places Index. They're going to look at the census tracts in San Diego with um, the lowest income and uh, housing and social and economic indicators and compare it to the rest of the county. So in other words, the lowest quartile to the rest of the county.
1: So this is an incentive to be investing more resources in the more disadvantaged communities. What more do you think needs to be done here to, to level this playing field?
2: You're right. This is a great incentive to get investment in these communities that have been hard hit by a variety of um, disease conditions with lower access to health care in general. You know, right now about half of the COVID tests in the county If you look at it by race, about half of them are being conducted amongst whites. And so this would be a way to try to level the playing field to make sure that everyone is having access to uh, free and easily accessible testing, as well as linkage to care afterwards. So um, it's a way to put the resources where it will have the greatest effect.
1: Right, because whites currently make up uh, less than half of the population. So
2: correct, about forty-five percent.
1: Now, at least one San Diego County Supervisor, Jim Desmond of North County, is very much opposed to this new trigger. Here's what he said on his YouTube channel yesterday:
5: The very businesses that uh, Mr. Newsom has been has closed and has kept closed, all right, and at least on a limited basis, uh, the restaurants and hotels and and the service type jobs are mostly those lower income type jobs, and he's kept those people out of work. Uh, so, you know, and unfortunately a lot of them live in, in um, disadvantaged communities, and unfortunately, if they don't have a job, they can't get care. they can't, and they, they don't get, possibly they get more of the virus.
1: So Supervisor Desmond is arguing that this extra trigger requirement could actually hurt the disadvantaged neighborhoods more. Um, What's your reaction to that?
2: Well, I understand the concern. Everyone wants to open the economy as quickly and safely as possible. And what this new measurement says is, yes, let's reopen our economy, but let's proceed safely. Let's ensure that these essential workers are protected. So although it may slow down slightly our um, ability to completely open, um, as I mentioned at the start, it's um, not a way to go backwards, we're still going to remain at the same tier based on this index, but it will let us um, combat COVID in a much smarter way so that If we pour our resources into the areas hardest hit, these workers who, you know, would love to start uh, working uh, full time in all sorts of neighborhoods within the county um, will have a much better chance to get to work and stay there rather than having to go through this cycle of opening and closing.
1: That makes sense but the the North County that Desmond represents has a lower rate of infections, and they, of course are frustrated by the new restrictions on their businesses. So, from their perspective, you know they ask why should North County restaurants be restricted to just fifty percent occupancy because people in South County are getting sick. So so how do you counter that argument?
2: I would say infectious diseases, no, no borders. So within a small geographic area, you're going to have a lot of mixing of populations, people living in one community and working in another. And just because residences in one area um, have had, at least in recent weeks, a lower infection rate, it doesn't mean that it can um, quickly increase again. So this is a way to try to ensure that we're going to open safely and that we can open for a longer amount of time if we make sure that we, address basically all the you know if you think of the fire analogy all the hot spots and really in pour resources into those areas. And again it's not closing anything that's currently opening it's just taking a step back, looking at The general picture of COVID within our county and making sure that all areas are meeting certain thresholds just to prevent this exponential rise again as people um, begin to mix more.
1: Right, and levelling that playing field. Dr. Brower, thanks so much for being with us. Great, thank you. We've been speaking with Dr. Kimberly Brower, the Vice Chair for Public Health Education at UCSD.
6: Two Democrats are facing off for the 53rd congressional seat next month. Sarah Jacobs is an anti-poverty advocate who is the granddaughter of Qualcomm co-founder Erwin Jacobs. And in the spirit of full disclosure, Irwin Jacobs is a major supporter of KPBS. Jacobs' opponent is current City of San Diego Council President Georgette Gomez. KPBS reporter Matt Hoffman introduces us to them.
7: A lot has changed for both candidates since campaigning in the March primary when the nation was not facing pandemic restrictions. Sarah Jacobs says it's not so easy without a lot of face-to-face contact.
3: We are phone banking, uh, getting creative, doing Zoom events, and just trying to find ways to connect with people virtually.
7: Georgette Gomez says her campaign has also been leveraging technology to reach voters.
4: Texting, uh, communicating with voters through social media. Um, and utilizing the power of social media really.
7: The two Democrats are vying to replace another Democrat, Representative Susan Davis, who is retiring from her 53rd seat after 20 years.
3: I consider myself a, a practical progressive, And I know that the only way we're ever able to get anything done, but especially in Washington, is by building coalitions.
7: Jacobs worked in the State Department during the Obama administration.
3: A lot of voters uh, really value the fact that I have experience working in the federal government, working on federal policy issues that I have experience on both the domestic and international issues that will be coming in front of Congress.
7: Gomez says voters need someone who understands them at a personal level and says because she grew up poor, she can relate to people going through tough
4: times. I've lived, personally lived housing insecurity at one time in my life, uh, growing up pretty uh, humbly with very little resources, having parents that had multiple jobs, but they still, at the end of the day, we were living paycheck by paycheck.
7: Gomez considers herself a progressive, but says her time on City Council proves that she can work with Republicans like San Diego Mayor Kevin Faulkner.
4: We introduced the uh, eviction moratorium, protecting renters in our businesses. Along with the mayor, we created a business relief program.
7: Both candidates say COVID-19 relief for businesses and individuals will likely be a major priority for the next Congress. They say the CARES Act, which brought stimulus checks and money for struggling businesses, was a good start.
3: It's clear we need a lot more, and I have been really disappointed that Congress hasn't passed another assistance package.
4: I truly am hoping that they move forward, that they can put their... The, the the division to the side, because this is not the time to be playing politics. This is the time where we need to lead.
7: It's no secret there's a lack of affordable housing in San Diego, and our county has one of the highest homeless populations in the nation. To address the housing crisis, Jacob wants to provide emergency assistance in the form of housing vouchers and rental aid, increase our federal homeless dollars, and add a rental tax credit.
3: So that any family who pays more than 30% of their income on rent gets assistance through the tax code. Then we need to build more affordable housing
7: decisions about how and where to build that affordable housing are largely in the hands of local governments some of which have been resistant to new units
3: but what we can do at the federal level is leverage public dollars to incentivize and push for more private investment
7: whether it's building low-income units or housing for people who are homeless gomez says it starts with hearing from the community
4: make sure that you're out there talking to your constituents and saying this is why it's important that we make our backyard available in order, I mean, people want us to resolve the, uh, the issue related to people living in the streets, but the only way we're gonna uh, resolve it is not through rock and science, it's we need to build units. We need to ensure that we have the necessary resources, and that's where Congress needs to come in.
7: Addressing climate change is also something on both candidates' agendas. Gomez says she supports Governor Gavin Newsom's recent executive order for all new cars in California to be zero emissions by 2035.
4: That's something that we should be, as a congressional members, we should be thinking about adopting as well. It should be a national model.
7: Jacob says Newsom's mandate has to be doable, and she wants to see an entirely energy-clean economy by 2030.
3: We need huge investments in new green technology.
7: A poll from last month shows Jacobs with a double-digit lead over Gomez, but in that same poll, nearly 40 percent of voters who responded were still undecided. Matt Hoffman, KPBS News.
6: Joining me is KPBS reporter Matt Hoffman, and Matt, welcome. Hey, Maureen. On the issues, it seems Jacobs and Gomez agree on most points, but their personal styles and life experiences are very different. Is that what this race is about?
7: I think it's it really depends on who you ask you know i think the gomez campaign would like to frame it as sort of a, a big david and goliath um sort of a, a, a battle here but um i really you know i think it's going to come down to voters and it's, it's really unclear if there's a lot of name recognition here right we have the city council current san diego city council president Georgette gomez uh going up against the, one of the jacobs family names and uh, it's really unclear where voters uh, are going to go this uh, november
6: Now, can you tell us a little more about the backgrounds of these two candidates? What did Sarah Jacobs do at the State Department and what has she been doing since?
7: Yeah, so she joined the Obama State Department as a contractor in the Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations. And I asked her about this and she said her work revolved around conflict zones in East and West Africa, uh, working on some presidential initiatives uh, some security sector assistance uh, some violent extremism um, and then she served as a foreign policy advisor to Hillary Clinton during her presidential campaign um, and later on uh, ended up running for the uh, for Congress in the 49th congressional district Mike Levin beat her out there
6: and Georgia Gomez says that she comes from an impoverished background uh, how did she get into politics
7: Gomez uh, describes herself as a sort of grassroots community organizer you know who grew up in barrio Logan um, as you heard, heard in the story you referenced you know, came from a low income household. And she thinks that those experiences, you know, growing up in that community help her relate to voters and some of the struggles that they're going with. Um, uh, She ended up going on to work for the environmental health coalition, uh, where she, you know, championed climate justice, she says. Um, And she was also on some, you know, redevelopment planning committees in district nine, which is the current city council seat that she uh, serves. And she just thinks that, you know, the next step to help people is uh, going to Congress.
6: What about the comparative war chests of these two candidates? It's been reported that the already wealthy Sarah Jacobs has gotten a lot of Jacobs family donations and has been helped by wealthy family friends as well. What do we know about that?
7: Yeah, so we know that a fundraising deadline just passed and we should have by the by the middle of the month the most updated numbers. But if you go to the FEC data, or if you go to their website, you can look at both candidates and see how much they've raised. Uh, Sarah Jacobs uh, has raised a total of $3.5 million. Now that's through a reporting period through the end of June. And if you look at Sarah Jacobs, um, out of that $3.5 million, um, $3 million, 2.9 million to be exact, um, is coming directly from her. So she's uh, self-funding. A lot of her campaign um, has raised uh, more than half a million dollars in individual contributions. Um, and yeah, you sort of hit on it. Georgette Gomez with a lot less contributions. I mean, we're talking $1.1 So um, at least through the end of June, almost a $2 million uh, fund- fundraising advantage for the Jacobs campaign. Um, obviously, though, a lot of that money coming uh, from Jacobs herself.
6: Tell us about endorsements. Who's supporting, for instance, Georgette Gomez?
7: Yeah, so Georgia Gomez uh, has a, a wide variety of support. I mean, we're talking from the State Democratic Party, California Nurses Association, a number of unions, um, including SEIU, California, one of the big ones, um, but also some really big names. So we're talking about, you know, Senators uh, Elizabeth Warren, Senator Bernie Sanders, um, also a broad coalition of, of local elected support, um, Congressman Juan Vargas. Assemblyman Todd Gloria, Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez, as well as a number of local city council members and mayors throughout the county. Um, and Jacobs, similar, you know, she's the uh, has support. There has been some sort of controversy with Jacobs using the phrase "endorsed by California Democrats," but she says, "Look, I'm endorsed by the current California Lieutenant Governor. Um, she's endorsed by Democrats from California, so she argues that there's really no beef there." Um, also, for Jacobs, uh, Congresswoman Katie Porter, who's made a lot of headlines, endorses her. Um, some other representatives throughout the country um, and groups like Mom Demands Action, uh, the East County Chamber of Commerce, Democratic Women's Club. um, And Jacobs also has a handful of city council members from across the county endorsing her.
6: Has retiring Congresswoman Susan Davis endorsed either candidate?
7: She has not endorsed either candidate Maureen, and we saw that in the primary as well, too, when there were more than a dozen people running for this seat. You know, people were wondering, is an endorsement going to come? And no. And uh, she basically, through a spokesperson, says that she doesn't think that the person leaving, you know, that the incumbent should decide her successor.
6: Now that 40% undecided that you mentioned in this district it's it's significant are gomez and jacobs set to meet in any forums or virtual forums that might help voters decide yeah, Maureen, they have been doing a number of
7: forums um, just in the last few weeks, and it's been increasing as we get closer, you know, a month away now uh, from the November election. And uh, we do know that they have another one coming up on October 19th. It's hosted uh, by the League of Women Voters. That's at 7 p.m., um, and that's going to be a virtual Zoom one. And it's, it's sort of been interesting to see these these Zoom debates, seeing, you know, what what the candidates put behind them, um, where they're doing it in their home, if they're doing it in their office, doing it outside. Uh, so that's at 7 p.m., and that's on October 19th, hosted by the League of Women voters. Matt, would you call this a
6: contentious race?
7: I I would say that it's getting contentious. I mean, if you talk to political scientists, I mean, there's two Democrats running in a highly Democratic district. So they say that these two Democrats are going to try to you know, distinguish themselves as much as they can from each other, especially when they have some overlapping positions. Now, we saw just recently the Georgette Gomez campaign put out a sort of attack ad, falsely linking Jacobs to Trump's tax cuts for corporations. So we might see more of that as it goes along. And I talked to some of those political scientists, and they say, uh, you might not see some of that come out of the Jacobs campaign, um, if they really do have such a big uh, lead in this race. Uh, although we know that was just one poll of 500 people last month. Um, we don't know what their in polling, what, what their internal polling shows. So it'll be really interesting to see as we get down here in the stretch, um, what the sort of polling shows and if we see some uh, attack ads or some mudslinging, so to speak between these two candidates.
6: I've been speaking with KPBS reporter Matt Hoffman, and Matt, thank you.
7: Thanks, Maureen.
8: Hi,
6: I'm
5: Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad.
1: You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Allison St. John, along with Maureen Kavanaugh. California voters are being asked whether the state should end cash bail as a way for people accused of crimes to secure their release before a trial. It's a system that most on the left agree is racist and unfair. So why are some progressive civil rights groups siding with the bail industry and law enforcement to keep bail in place? KQED's politics correspondent, Marisa Lagos, reports.
9: It's not often that you see progressive groups on the same side of an issue as bail agents, prosecutors, and police. But John Raifling of Human Rights Watch in L.A. joins the bail industry in saying Proposition 25 would do more harm than good. That's not to say he's a big fan of the bail industry.
8: The bail bond industry is a parasite. They're, they're bloodsuckers, but the blood wouldn't be available to them if it wasn't for judges and law enforcement.
9: Raifling believes that the system voters are being asked to replace bail with isn't fair either. He says it gives those judges way too much power to decide who leaves and who stays in jail before a trial. He's concerned that the risk assessment tools judges will be using to gauge whether someone is a public safety risk could be biased themselves. And he's unhappy that probation departments will be in charge of overseeing people who are released before their trial.
10: I can't predict what will happen but I can say that the the system they've set up is going to allow for expanded incarceration and expanded pretrial supervision, including electronic monitoring, all which is going to lead to more incarceration.
9: Proposition 25's backers say that's just not true. John Bowders is the budget advocacy director for the criminal justice reform group Californians for Safety and Justice.
10: It is going to reduce the number of people held in County jail pre-trial awaiting trial.
9: Bowders points to a study by the Public Policy Institute of California, which found that if Prop 25 passes, more people would be released from jail sooner. The debate kicked off two years ago when lawmakers passed a bill making it illegal for courts to keep someone in jail if they can't afford bail. They replaced it with a system that generally requires people arrested for misdemeanors to be automatically let go before trial, and for those accused of violent felonies to be kept in jail. Those accused of lower-level felonies would go before a judge who could keep them in jail or put conditions on their release, say drug treatment or a weekly probation check-in. Santa Barbara Probation Chief Tanya Heitman, whose county has been experimenting with alternatives to money bail, says the changes make sense.
2: We know that money bail doesn't make us safe, but allowing people to stay connected to their families, to continue working... That's what's going to um, enable them to be successful and improve our, our community overall.
9: The 2018 law never went into effect because the bail industry gathered enough signatures to put the question before voters. It's a referendum on the legislation, meaning a yes vote on Prop 25 would let the bail reform law take effect. And a no vote would overturn the law and prohibit the legislature from taking up the question again. The bail industry is funding the opposition, but they're being helped by some groups on the left who say Prop 25 will simply hand too much power to judges, judges who have biases of their own. Incha Raman is a former public defender who's now vice president of advocacy and initiatives at the Vera Institute of Justice in New York. She argues there's no reason to think that judges would behave differently because Prop 25 still gives them the power to hold people in jail. When it comes to public safety across the board. We tend to just use our discretion to detain. That's what the system has historically done. Supporters say Prop 25 may not be perfect, but it's still a huge step in the right direction. And one California can only improve on if it's passed.
1: That was KQED politics correspondent Marisa Lagos. This year, California voters have a shot at overturning one of the most notorious propositions of recent decades, or part of it, anyways. Proposition 15 on the November ballot would increase property taxes on corporations, undoing a key component of Prop 13. That 1978 landmark ballot measure was sold to voters as a way of helping homeowners. But critics say it's dealt a big blow to state school funding and was a boon to companies. We explore why commercial property was included in the original measure. KQED's politics editor, Scott Schaefer, takes a look at why commercial properties was even included in the first place. In 1978,
10: inflation was running high, and it was driving up property taxes paid by California homeowners. And a political gadfly in Southern California was on it. We have a new revolution against the arrogant politicians. And insensitive bureaucrats' Howard Jarvis collected enough signatures that year to place a massive property tax cut on the ballot, Proposition 13. On KQED-TV that year, he framed Prop 13 this way. The people that are being hurt are the elderly people on limited incomes who have spent all their life earning a home. And the state is kicking them out in droves. And this is what this is about. But in that same KQED appearance, San Francisco Assemblyman Leo McCarthy noted that corporations were also going to get huge tax breaks under the Jarvis measure. Let me give you an example of some of the business uh, cuts that would result. Pacific Telephone would have a $130 million cut. Standard Oil, $13 million. Southern Pacific, $12 million. They didn't ask for the cuts, but Mr. Jarvis is kind enough to give them to them. Prop 13 did not distinguish between residential and commercial property. But Joel Fox, who worked for Howard Jarvis, said California had always treated commercial and residential property the same way.
8: So in writing an amendment, to the Constitution on property taxes. It was just simple to maintain what was already in the Constitution.
10: In fact, business groups opposed Prop 13 and gave money to defeat it. But since it passed, residential and commercial property taxes have only gone up more than 2% when a property was sold. But how selling a property was legally defined was left to the legislature. Enter San Francisco Democrat Willie Brown. I wrote the implementation process after it had been passed by the voters. As chairman of the Assembly Revenue and Tax Committee, Brown wrote the law defining exactly when a commercial property would be reassessed. He says now they blew it. We should have said any time there is a change in the ownership of the property through any means, that constitutes a transfer for reassessment purposes. Under the legislature's rules, a commercial property was only reassessed when 50% or more of the property legally changed hands. And big corporations have benefited ever since. Prop 15 on the November ballot would close that corporate loophole, reassessing commercial property and basing the taxes on current market value, not what it costs to buy it. Business groups oppose Prop 15, saying that raising taxes in the middle of a recession is a bad idea. But Manuel Pastor, director of the USC Program for Environmental and Regional Equity, notes that things have changed in California since Prop 13 passed, slashing funds for public schools and services.
11: The question is, are we the California that passed Prop 13? Are we the California that wants to reevaluate that and think about investments in young people?
10: If Prop 15 passes, many will say it's the end of an era that ushered in a California tax revolt.
1: That was KQED's Scott
6: Schaefer. Who do you know who's worked for the same organization for 47 years? Well, even if you know anyone who fits that bill, he or she is sure to be a rare bird. Our own rare bird, KPBS General Manager Tom Carlo, who has the distinction of serving nearly 50 years at the station, is now getting ready to fly the coop. Mr. Carlo has announced his retirement effective at the end of the year. And not only does it mean a sea change for our broadcast station, but also for the KPBS community throughout San Diego that Tom Carlo has encouraged and supported for decades. Joining me is KPBS general manager, Tom Carlo and welcome. Well,
8: thank you very much, Maureen. Wow, what a nice opening you did there.
6: (laughs) (laughs) Well, was retirement, though, a difficult decision for you, Tom?
8: It was because I've always felt I've had the best job in the world working for KPBS for 47 years and uh, very close to 12 years uh, as general manager. You know, I am getting a little older and getting close to 70 pretty soon, and uh, I just felt it was time to to have the new leaders of KPBS take us to another level over these next couple of decades.
6: What was your first job, if I may ask you, when you came to KPBS, And what was the <laughs> station like back then?
8: Well, I started in September of 1973 and I was a student at San Diego State. So um, I got on the production crew uh, in the studio. So I was helping to put up sets, hang lights, run camera, and i was making a dollar 89 an hour which was minimum wage i had just gotten married and uh, we had a, a little boy on the way who's now 46 years old and uh so i tried my best to do whatever i could at kpbs the station kpbs tv and radio was much, much smaller in those days uh, we had about 20 full-time employees and about 20 part-time and i remember arriving and everyone was still excited because Within the previous year, we had just converted from black and white television to color television. And we weren't a news operation and we really didn't have a very big audience, especially on radio. And to see where KPBS now is reaching over 1.2 million people a week, on the multi-platforms that our content is on, the recognition we get as being a very trusted news operation that's unbiased and objective, and to see how we've grown to close to 180 employees now. Um, I just wanna say thank you to the current team and, and the, the staff before us because they've really put KPBS on a, a tremendous tra- uh, trajectory.
6: Well, during your time as general manager, KPBS well, launched a nightly newscast. You saw personnel grow. You saw the newsroom union unionize and technology changed drastically. KPBS must have changed in ways that you could never have imagined when you became general manager 12 years ago. Is that right?
8: You know, when I became general manager, I I started on February 1st of 2009. And I saw us the previous eight years struggle immensely as a TV and a radio station, because something called the digital technology revolution was taking audiences away from these traditional media distribution platforms. And for us at KPBS, I wasn't general manager at the time, but in 2001 with the stock market crash in 9-11, we had a tremendous downturn. And again in 2006, and then in 2008 with the stock, I mean, with the recession starting in the mortgage crisis, So when I became general manager, I knew we had to change our complete business model. So I just said, you know what? I think there is a void in this community of serious local journalism on other platforms. And that's when I made the decision and the vision to take our radio news and expand it and put it on TV, on demand, podcast, and digital and social media. So we converged TV and radio and digital and, and converged them into one content producing division. And we started to train all of our journalists and said, you know, now we're going to produce stories and they're not just going to go on radio. They're going to also have a chance to reach audiences on TV, on demand and in digital and social media. Our newsroom grew and... Uh, you know we've been talking to over 40 people that actually think it's getting closer to 50 and that was 12 years ago when we had about 15 people in our newsroom.
6: Well as you know Tom uh COVID-19 has had such a big impact on the station. People are working from home, including myself, including you. Some positions have been cut or scaled back and SDSU is offering a buyout for some senior members of staff. I'm wondering, is that why you decided to retire at this time?
8: Well, it is a factor and, you know, I'll be honest, uh, there is an early exit program and uh, I, i felt the timing worked in conjunction with us completing the uh uh the the money we needed to construct and renovate our building and um i have to say that uh, in february we were riding high on our 12th straight year of tremendous growth and COVID hit us all in march and uh, like any other organization or business we had our challenges and our difficulties, especially in our corporate area. Our corporate support has dropped dramatically. and uh, we had to make some tough decisions in May to cut back on the staff. but we have to live within our means. Our revenue has has declined a little bit. But the good thing is is our audience has has grown tremendously. So um, you know, I was kind of trying to time everything for my retirement to, Make sure that the building project would start. Make sure there was some stability in our in our in our finances and our budget. And even though we're a little bit smaller organization, we're somewhat stable right now. And the early exit uh, uh, program was was an incentive for me to pick the date right now.
6: Well, now that you're leaving. KPBS will have a woman as acting general manager, Nancy Worley, the first time a woman will be leading KPBS. And that seems like part of the overall renewed commitment to diversity that the station has been embarking on. Can you tell us about that effort?
8: Well, um, I'm I'm actually very pleased on how our diversity has grown over the, the years. I think we still have a long ways to go. Almost all of our of our anchors and hosts are either women or people of color. Our, our focus on our podcast series this year, like, like Rad Scientists with Dr. Margot Wall and, and uh, my first day, are all focusing on diverse people. Uh, we're getting more diverse people in our on our, uh, uh, our news team. I think we have a ways to go, and I'm really thrilled about Nancy getting this appointment. She's been done an excellent job. And um, I do think we have, we can even do better though.
6: Tom, thank you for all your efforts for this station through the years and enjoy your retirement.
8: Thank you very much, Maureen.
6: I've been speaking with KPBS General Manager, Tom Carlo.
0: KPBS On Demand is supported by Bill Howe Plumbing, Heating and Air Restoration and Flood Services. Family owned and operated for three generations, Bill Howe has been serving the plumbing, heating and air, and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980. With their fleet of trained professionals, Bill Howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Bill Howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit billhowe.com, because we know how.
6: This is KPBS Midday Edition, I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Allison St. John. Poet and UC San Diego literature professor Kazim Ali is out with a new book of poetry. The Voice of Sheila Chandra is Ali's seventh collection of poetry and 20th book. It's named after a popular Indian singer who lost her voice. Kazim Ali spoke with KPBS arts editor and producer Julia Dixon Evans about the work.
12: The title poem of this book, The Voice of Sheila Chandra, is inspired by a musician who lost her ability to sing. Can you tell us a little bit about Sheila and what her story and the way she expresses herself means?
11: Um, Sheila Chandra is an amazing singer. Um, she sang a range in the earlier part of her career. It was more you know, pop songs and ballads and things like that. She sang on the Lord of the Rings soundtrack, for example. Um, But she really transitioned into singing influenced by Indian classical music, including drones. A lot of her body of work is drones and a, a certain type of Indian vocalization called conical, where the singer imitates a drum or imitates percussive sounds. And I just became really interested in all of the different qualities of a voice and all of the different sounds a human voice can make. So in 2008, when Sheila Chandra developed a very rare neurological condition called burning mouth syndrome, she was no longer able to sing. She's um, functionally mute from that syndrome, although she's still able to speak in very, very limited quality. And so I also became interested in the concept of silence and the qualities of silence and sound and what of sound lives in silence and what of silence lives in sound. And so the poems themselves try to explore that from many directions.
12: Can you read a few stances from that poem, the voice of Sheila Chandra for us?
11: Um, Yes, I sure will. Um, and so these sonnets all use um, various different, um, unlike the classical sonnet, which has a single turn in the middle of the poem, these poems, um, these sonnets actually turn multiple times within the single poem. And I also explore using rhyme and repetition, etc, some of the qualities of the drone. Carried cacophony, world wheel into the human, one small voice, box, pool, swum, midnight. We went into the sea expecting our prayers might carry themselves across the silver slammed surface would be answered or do they answer? Pale cut of prayers do not answer like back into the dark water. What are those stripes of light across the room? A shape that evaporates Upon waking, what language cannot hold onto, what you cannot hold onto.
12: Thank you. Each of these pieces plays with language in a way that feels really interwoven and familiar to the rest of the book. Can you tell us a little bit about how these individual works feed into each other?
11: So the book itself is three long poems, and then there's little fragmented poems that kind of intersperse or act as pauses in between. And the notion was that the big long poems would kind of set up at this glacial pace and glacial architecture, this you kind know, of long reality. And then the little poems that happened in between, the interstitial poems, would be very dramatic and shake things up in a thunderous way. And the sonnets of Sheila Chandra, all it's the constant echoing throughout. The three long poems are all extremely different in physical form. They look very different. If you were to flip through the book, you would see some have extremely long lines, some have very short lines. Um, The final poem has all these textured components where the letters are scattered across the page. Um, And so it's important to me to really try to explore all different dimensions of a speaking voice in a poem as well, just like the singing voice can be explored in so many different directions when you when you have a singer like Sheila Chandra, or uh, Tanya Tagak, the Canadian um, throat singer or Leela Downs or Bjork or Yoko Ono, um, singers who really explore the range of what a voice can do, um, who move all you know, through ranges. um, It's quite unusual.
12: Can we talk a little bit about Hesperine for David Berger. You weave together these narrative threads about several people, including Berger, a victim from the 1972 Olympics massacre, and more, including the narrator. Can you tell me a little bit about what this work tells us about time and space and bodies together?
11: It's just all of these different strands started weaving themselves together and I became very interested in the Islamic concept of kismet, which is often translated as fate, but uh, unlike the the notion of a cause and effect, a simple like a linear cause and effect. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction, which is also from physics. The Islamic concept of kismet is the multiplicity of factors that exist in the universe that all impact each other. And then the concept of entanglement from quantum physics tells us that the past affects the future and the future affects the past. And then so I was myself thinking about how do you contend with a violent past? You can't erase it or unmake it. And then I thought, or can you, you know? So the poem itself became this active gesture towards trying to, I don't know, create some magic. I thought there has to be a way to not erase history, but recreate it in some way that will allow us to live.
12: These pieces that are entrenched in these specific times, and also the more timeless way that they're all linked, what does it mean to release this book into the mess of
11: 2020 I mean it's like I did not plan it first of all who knew this was gonna happen but we are really in a free fall and what's the what the, the strangest part of it is we're in a free fall but we're all we're also all riveted in place we are all removed from each other we are we are shielded for ideally if we're being responsible we're shielding ourselves and uh we're living in really close quarters with our families <laughs> And then the the chaos that sort of reigns, it's a very tense time, yet it's also a time of stillness. In a way, it feels like a calm before a storm type of situation. Um, Although the storm exists, you know, like when when George Floyd was killed and it was just sort of this flashpoint, a turning point sometimes these events are part of, um, they're part of an ongoing pattern, but for some reason, a single event crystallizes. We often think about history turning on a, a weird dime of uh, uh, some kind of breaking point that has nothing to do with what came before, what what came after it, the idea of the historical event. But really, it isn't like that. It is more like the concept of kismet, where there's a never-ending chain of happenings that grow and develop and change, and then at some point, yes, the seed breaks ground and comes out into the
6: world. That was poet Kazim Ali speaking with KPBS arts editor, Julia Dixon Evans. His new collection, The Voice of Sheila Chandra is out now. And for a list of forthcoming readings, visit KazimAli.com.
0: KPBS On Demand is supported by Bill How Plumbing, Heating, and Air Restoration and Flood Services. Family owned and operated for three generations, Bill Howe has been serving the plumbing, heating and air and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980 with their fleet of trained professionals. Bill Howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Bill Howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit billhowe.com because we know how.